So we'll be in Isaiah 65. We're almost at the end of this book. Yeah, it's been as long as I remember, and good. Uh, now we're going to talk a little bit about destiny today. It's really an ancient idea, and it's interesting how it's expressed in modern culture. We use it sometimes if someone, let's say with a, a sporting pedigree, uh, ends up like following in their mother or father's footsteps to be a sportsman, like a swimmer or a cricketer, and, and when they realize that potential, they say, oh, he was destined for greatness. You know, he, he had it in the family. Or if, you, if you're a Star Wars person, you remember that scene with Darth Vader and Luke where he finds out Darth Vader is his father, and he says, fulfill your destiny. You know, we were destined to rule the galaxy as father and son. It's this inescapable thing that everything has led to this moment, and you have to now... You, you don't have a choice. You really are stuck, and there, you see that battle in that scene. But destiny, it suggests that something's predetermined. It's inevitable. Webster defines it as ultimate fate, invincible necessity, a fixed order of things established by a divine decree. A more modern uh, definition is destiny is the hidden power believed to control future events or fate. So this hidden power that somehow just leads you without your knowledge or ability to resist to this point. And people worshipped this power as they did. They recognized the Greeks and Romans, the fates. They were personified as these three spinsters that would, you know, you were bound by fate. You, you didn't really have a choice in the matter. But the term destiny does not appear in the Bible. It's never there because God is in control of things, but he doesn't force. He has determined some things, right? God has determined that things like the soul that sins will surely die. That is determined. However, God has given people the choice of life. We can choose life and we can come to him and have eternal life. So it's, and, and, uh, now God's not hidden his existence. He's not some hidden power. He's revealed himself, and he has, as our creator, and he's shown us our sinfulness through his law, and he's made a way of forgiveness through faith. And we can choose our way or God's way. Now, Benjamin Franklin, he's credited with saying in a letter, in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. <clears throat> now, he said that to illustrate that no matter what, you're going to have to pay tax. That, that was the whole point of him saying that is taxes, they are certain, as certain as you're not going to escape death, you can't escape taxes. So that's inevitable. But we have, we're assured of so much better things coming to Christ after we receive the gospel. We have this glorious eternity that God has, uh, he is preparing for us. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you can be also. So he wants us to be with him. And the Holy Spirit is taking residence in our hearts. And this concept of inescapable destiny, it can lead to despair or passivity as if we can't improve upon it. It's kind of set. There's really no benefit in me laboring. Uh, for anything, because it's already set, it's been determined. But the fact is, we have been saved to do good things. 
And if you think of the end of David, uh, excuse me, Jacob's life, Israel, as his sons are gathered around, he uttered a different saying over each one of them. And some of them were really positive and some weren't as positive. And I want to be, when this life is over for me, to be a servant and a son in whom God is well pleased. And he says, enter into the joy of the Lord. And he has fine things to say about me. Uh, and so the fact that he said different things, it shows us that each one of us, God has something to say. And he, he's, he knows you and he's, he's watching. And there are rewards that we can have that uh, he wants us to have. So may we labor to enter in and receive them. So let's thank the Lord again in prayer. Father, thank you that you are a good God who's given us everything we need, that you've given us brains to think, you've given us your word, you have opened a way of salvation to us through Jesus, and I pray that we would be those who labor for you, that we don't become passive in our walk and or despair that things can never change, but know that you are able to do everything and that nothing is difficult for you and that you have you have a full reward for each one of us, and may we labor to receive that full reward, not to fall short of the grace of God. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Thank you for your acceptance and your forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Isaiah 65, starting in verse 8. Thus says the Lord, As the new wine is found in the cluster, and one says, Do not destroy it, for a blessing is in it, so will I do for my servant's sake, that I may not destroy them all. I will bring forth descendants from Jacob, and from Judah an heir of my mountains. My elect shall inherit it, and my sh servants shall dwell there. Sharon shall be for a fold of flocks, and the valley of Achor a place for herds to lie down, for my people who have sought me. There are some grapevines over by our, our home in Riverston, and during the winter, they look extremely dry and dead. You would drive by and just think, man, that needs to be cleared out 100%. There's nothing living there. It's just brambles. But the fact is, they're actually alive because every spring and summer, they, there's foliage everywhere. And that's what Israel looked like at this time. They looked dry, spiritually dry, uh, cut off from God in a sense, and torn by war and the oppression of the Syrians and the Babylonians. And it looked like there was nothing good going on. But God said, hey, there's a cluster there. He saw this cluster and he saw it as a, a sign of future fruitfulness. He said, there's, there's good in it. That root is still viable. There's still life in that vine. And it's, it's very encouraging. We read Jesus, a story he told in Luke 13, of a landowner, he's surveying the property with his gardener, and they walk by this one tree, and it was a fruit tree. And the landowner says, year after year, I have come looking for fruit from this tree, but there's no, there's no fruit. What's the point of having a fruitless fruit tree? Why do we even let it take up the ground? Let's chop it down. So they're having this discussion, and the, the landscaper, the gardener says, well, hold on. Let me dig around it. Let me fertilize it. Let me prune it. If it doesn't respond to this treatment in a year's time, okay, we can cut it down. But let me try some things. Let me give it some special attention. And that was agreeable. 
And that care and patience shown by the gardener, who wasn't into just cutting down trees and starting over, he was, that's the kind of love and care God has for us, where we may feel or appear to be dry and dead, but he wants to feed us and nurture us and, and prune us so we can be more fruitful. Instead of peop- seeing his people as fully corrupt, beyond all hope, I'm starting over, I'm wiping them off the map. No, he said there's a cluster there, there's new wine to be had, and God would do the work. It looked like revival was impossible. And we can look around the world and think, oh man, revival seems impossible for for this world or this person. But know that what is impossible with men is possible with God. He would not just save the remnant, but he'd cause them to flourish. Though Israel would be desolate for 70 years, he said, I have reserved this land for my elect, the Jews that he had chosen, And parallelism, it's a literary device used in Hebrew literature. And we see it here where he says, My elect shall inherit it, and my servants shall dwell there. This is synthetic parallelism. It's the second line that builds upon the first. It explains it a little further. Because there's been many servants, right? Many masters. But this verse, it shows that election is not by birthright alone, but it's evidenced by those who serve him. So he says, these people, my servants. So it's those who serve him. There's many people who will say, Lord, Lord, and trot out the great things they've done for God. But Jesus will say to them, depart from me. I don't know you, you who practice lawlessness. So their own life was evidence that they really didn't know God. They were practicing lawlessness. And so there's this description here, the future state of his people, one of rest and uh, safety where they would lie down. That's really significant in scripture because if, if a sheep is not feeling content or safe, they will not lie down. So if you're going to lie down in green pastures, that means it's free from enemies. It's a place of, of rest and comfort. And that's the place that God has for us. And then he goes on to say, for my people who have sought me. So not just my elect, but my servants and those who have sought me. So that gives another picture of those who are God's elect. They will seek him. They will find their rest in him. So the way to Christ, the way to God is inclusive. Everyone is invited. All can come, but the way is exclusive. It's only through Jesus Faith in him who is the way, the truth, and the life. Isaiah 65, 11. But you are those who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who prepare a table for Gad and furnish it, furnish a drink offering for many. Therefore, I will number you for the sword, and you shall all bow down to the slaughter. Because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not hear, but did evil before my eyes and chose that in which I do not delight. For the remnant, there was a bright future. But for those who had forsaken him and forgotten him, they would be judged. I learned this week that during the winter, a grapevine, you can prune 90% of it and it will still be viable. That's like I feel bad cutting back my roses a little bit, but 90%, that's quite a substantial cutting. And it will still grow. And what it does is it helps maintain shape. 
it stimulates growth and fruitfulness. So that's the way to get it to grow more is to prune it. And uh, it seems many of God's people, they ignored the worship of God that he had prescribed. He said, you forget my holy mountain. You have neglected my presence. And we see that they were offering sacrifices to idols, Gad and Mani, their fortune and destiny. So these are the two, these are two of their idols, which the Babylonians and the Syrians and many others have worshipped and sacrificed to. Looking for good luck, right? Good luck is a big thing in a lot of the world where people, they'll wear this for good luck or they will, uh, they're seeking good luck for themselves or bad luck for other people, right? Either way is good. As long as I'm benefiting in some way, that's wonderful. The origin of the word fortune, where he said, oh, it was fortunate or fortuitous. Those are a tip of the cap to this god, fortune. That's the, ba- the basis of that word, is a deity. So I, I try not to use those words, even though they're very common that we would use them and say, oh, it's fortunate that this happened. Well, I don't want to give credit to some false god that that happened. No, it was God's Uh, By God's grace, that happened. So acknowledge God, not fortune. Those who sought fortune and destiny, they were appointed to the sword. And God said, when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not hear. So here they are crying out to these idols, wanting them to change the course of their destiny. But God's saying, I've been talking to you and you haven't been listening. I'm calling to you. You're calling out to these gods who aren't speaking. I mean, they're they're nothings. And yet I spoke to you and you haven't responded. You ignored my voice. Now, before we are quick to judge these folks, understand they're doing a very natural thing. They're looking for security, plenty, prosperity, protection, Comfort, these are, these are the things you're looking for, and they're all things that we also want in life, right? We want to feel comforted and secure and have protection and feel like we're set for life. Isn't there something about that term that is appealing that I could say, I'm set for life. I have enough money that I don't have to even worry about it. Not that God wants us to worry about it, even if we do have money or don't have money. We can dream of of a massive cash windfall that would allow me to quit my job and pay off my debts or uh, buy this thing or travel or whatever idea that we have. But the fact is, no one is set for life on this earth except if you know Jesus Christ because there is no life here to be had because all This world is going to stop spinning one day. This universe is going to dissolve in fervent heat someday. It is going to end. There's no life to be had here. The life that we have is found in Jesus Christ. If there was a good luck train destined for good fortune, we'd all climb aboard, wouldn't we? A good luck train. We'd pay that fare. Oh, yeah, I want a good destiny. I want a good future. It was Lefty Gomez, the baseballer, who said, I'd rather be lucky than good. And it's an interesting uh, comparison because Jesus said there's no one good but God, and he puts luck opposite that. I'd rather be lucky than good. Like I, Instead of being 
skilled at something, I just like to have good fortune. Just have the, the ball bounce my way, right? I don't care to work on my skills. I just rather be lucky than good. And it's so easy for me and for everyone, I think, to speak and to think without taking God into account, without taking what God has said to be true into account. And we can use the terminology and the thought processes of the world without acknowledging God and that he does do everything. And he has made us promises that we can count on. There's no good luck or bad luck with God. If Jesus is your life, then you have life. And abundant life. Isaiah 65, 13. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be ashamed. Behold, my servants shall sing for joy of heart, but you shall cry for sorrow of heart and wail for grief of spirit. You shall leave your name as a curse to my chosen, for the Lord God will slay you and call his servants by another name, so that he who blesses himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth, and he who swears in the earth shall swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten, because they are hidden from my eyes. Even as a shepherd can distinguish his sheep from his goats, or a gardener can tell dead wood from living wood. So God makes a distinction between those who call themselves by God's name and his servants. And he puts this comparison here between my servants will do this, but you'll, you're the ones who've forsaken me. This is what will be your future. So he says, my faithful servants, they will eat, drink, rejoice, and sing for joy. That sounds like a good plan. And God also proclaimed a curse upon those who forsook him. They would be hungry, thirsty, ashamed, cry for sorrow of heart, and wail for grief. Their name would be a curse, and they would be slain. Now it says that God will call his servants by another name, and it's easily verified in Scripture to be Jesus Christ. That's the name through whom we are saved. And we read this in Peter, uh, well, Peter's words in Acts for 10 through 12, after he had healed a lame man. It says, Let it be known to you all, to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So Jesus, he is the one by whom we are called. We bear his name. Now, Acts eleven twenty six, it says that uh, followers of Jesus were first called Christians in Antioch, and it's believed to be as a slur that they were, uh, you know, being like Jesus, you know, kind of just like a little Jesus, copying him, weak-minded, the religion for women and slaves, that sort of mentality. And... Uh, Good on you, because I was a slave of sin, and I am weak. I need a savior. I need forgiveness. And so I'll own that for sure. But labeling yourself a Christian does not mean that you are saved. Being a Christian today, I think the word Christian has lost a lot of its original meaning. 
Being Christian has never saved a soul. It's only being born again after we repent and trust in Christ that we're saved. Jesus came to save, not to condemn, because the world was completely condemned already. Jesus went to the lost sheep of Israel because they were headed for destruction. And so he has come to us as well. Even as Paul said, hey, I'm going to the Gentiles and they'll hear. May we hear what God is saying to us today. So there's no Jew that will be saved eternally because of ethnicity or culture or religion, but because they have trusted in Jesus Christ and they are called by his name. That is where salvation is. Isaiah 65, 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing and her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. God speaks of new heavens and a new earth. He'll create after this world is dissolved, at the conclusion of all things. And uh, we can be pretty sentimental, can't we? We don't like throwing things out. And uh, we could lament what is passing away as Lot's wife looked back to Sodom, or we can look forward to God and the future that he has for us. We can rejoice, he says, because God knows us. I just see it here where he says, The former will not be remembered nor come into mind, but be glad and rejoice in what I make. He knows that we have, uh, whether or not we should, we have a certain amount of affections tied up in this place with people and things that have happened and and, uh, things that we really hold dear, right? If people say, if you had to go back into your house and it was on fire and you could safely get one item, what would it be? And a lot of times people say, some sort of memento or keepsake, photos, something uh, not like, oh, my laptop, I would just need that. That's usually not it, because that's insured. Um, but I get, I'm going uh, away from what I need to say. So, these verses speak of more than just the return of Christ with his saints, the establishment of his thousand-year reign. This is after that. Isaiah has this way where he'll talk about something future, and he'll kind of come back to a a different future point. And so it's through looking at other scriptures that we can know what he's talking about. There's very strong scriptural evidence that the physical physical return of Jesus will usher in the millennial period, which is a thousand-year reign where Jesus will reign in Israel. He will set up his throne in Jerusalem. That's called premillennial, so that Jesus would return before the millennium. He would reign on earth during the millennium, the time where Satan is bound in the bottomless pit. In the millennium, there will be memory of the previous world. There will still be death, as we're going to read. But this is talking about something different, a new heaven and a new earth. Psalm 72 can be applied to the reign of Christ, how nations were judged. They would come before him bearing gifts. This will be a season for the healing of the nations. There will be a temple where Christ will set up his throne. It says in Ezekiel 43.7, and we read in, in Revelation that there's no need for a temple because God's the temple. So this is, this is a different situation. It says in Ezekiel 43.7, And he said to me, Son of man, 
This is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever. No more shall the house of Israel defile my holy name, nor their kings by their harlotry or with the carcasses of their kings on their high places. So there won't be any death in the new heavens and new earth that God creates totally free from sin. Death is a consequence of sin. So there will be no no uh, sin or the consequence of it whatsoever. Now at the end of the 1,000 year reign, Revelation 20 verse 3, it says that Satan will be re- released for a season and he will deceive the nations and they will attack Jesus and his saints. And Jesus will put down that rebellion easily with the words of his mouth. Then the new heavens and new earth will be created. And for more on the new heavens and new earth, since we're talking about them, let's turn to Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4. Revelations 21, 1 through 4. This is really a picture of heaven, what we say heaven. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Now that is a glorious picture, especially for those who have pain, who have sorrow, who have cried, who are crying. There is a day coming when we in a glorified state will be with God forever in a world completely unsullied with sin. And we too will be free of our sin nature and this flesh that opposes the things of God. There is this distinction made of the new earth that there will be no sea. This could be taken literally, that there's no saline oceans anymore. Some make the point as well that the sea in Scripture is a picture of sinful humanity in Revelation 13.1, it speaks of the beast rising up out of the sea. There's several times where the sea is a reference to a group of people or the nations. Um, but the new heavens and earth will not disappoint. We have ideas of what we think heaven would be like, or we go to a, a touristy spot and we go, oh, this is heaven, right? No, it's not. It's really nothing like heaven. It may be a really nice, idyllic place, but heaven is totally different because God is there and we are in him. Think about this. Does does God's glory compare to the beauty of a waterfall or a windswept field of flowers, a sunrise, or a rock formation? No. Those Those things that we do find spectacular and we'd say, that needs to be in a calendar where I can look at that picture for a month you know, I want that in my diary. I want that as my backdrop on my my TV or my, my phone so that I can look at it and go, whoa, that's where I want to be. 
Now that is a shadow of the glory of God. It's not the substance of God's glory. It just gives us a glimpse of it. And we look at that and go, whoa, breathtaking. We look up at the stars and say, wow, look at that. How immense is God and his wisdom. How mighty, how infinite is his love. It just goes and goes. It's just, I think when we talk about heaven, spatially we think of heaven being up there and earth being down here. But when the universe is completely dissolved, a new heaven and a new earth will be created and our feet will be on the ground. We will have, we're not going to be like up in a cloud like in the cartoons with a harp looking down at something, needing wings to move from here to there. No, it will be, in a way, it's kind of hard to say, like this, but there will be a new heavens and a new earth. And because everything is gone, there's no, like, it's up here and we're down here. It's all gone, and he starts again, making new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. I don't know about you, but I'm happy to leave this world and every memory of it to be with God forever. I don't think I could, I ever, I don't think there were, I know that there were times when I would not have said that. There were still things that I wanted to tick off. There's things I wanted to do, things I wanted to see. But do you guys ever long for home? When I long for home, I'm not thinking about the United States. I'm thinking about heaven, where God is, where I'll be with him forever. And I won't have the pains and the sorrows and the uncertainties of this life. There's something in us, I think, that longs for home, that longs to, to make good on our heavenly citizenship. Or like, this is where I was meant to be my whole life. I never knew. Like, I was always looking to fit in. I was always looking to feel comfortable. I always wanted to, to, to be somewhere where I mattered and, and around the people that love God and that love me. And no matter how glorious God's love is on earth, there's something in us that goes, you know, I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to being in the presence of God. I'm looking forward to being in a world that hasn't been permeated with thousands of years, a cumulative effect of human folly and rebellion against God, where the earth has been drenched in blood that needs to be answered for, where the, the souls of people cry out for justice because of the the horrors that have been meted out upon them. There are spiritual hosts of darkness here that keep people deceived, that seek to run nations into ruin. They keep people blind to the goodness of God. And even as the curse of sin, it caused thorns and thistles to grow, so sin brought disease and sickness and sorrow and murder and fear and death. That all came because of sin, because of our choices. And you know, we can be easily accustomed to our living conditions. Your own breath needs to be pretty foul before you know that it's bad. Right? You've seen like the, the, the breathing. <sighs> Is it bad? I don't know. Well, it's got to be really bad when you go, you know, I can smell myself. It's bad. Don't come near me. You know, unclean, stay away. I remember when Laura and I went to, to buy a house 
and uh, we went to several open houses. And my dad came along. He's a builder, so he came along with us. And, and I remember one house, we opened the door, and it was like this pungent ammonia scent just hit us in the face. And as we walked around for a few minutes, my dad's like, he walked by and he just kind of wrinkled his nose and goes, cats. That's all he said. Because there had been a lot of cats and they had not been using the litter box. And, and it was evident that if we were going to buy that house, there was going to be some serious renovation. So we didn't buy that one because the carpets were going to have to go and it would need to be painted. And they would just need to be, because of neglect, things would have to be done. And I'm, I'm sure that as shocking as it was for us to come into that sort of environment, the previous tenants weren't quite noticing that. They had become, to some degree, accustomed to it. You notice that, where you go to someone else's house or someone else's car, and there it just smells different. It may not be bad, but it's something that you're not really used to. Well, it could be like that with how your body smells or something that we're, you know, let's be honest here. We're not always the freshest. But praise the Lord, he was willing to come down and to live in this sin-ridden, sin-soaked planet. It's infested with demonic vermin and filth, structurally unstable with the dry rot of self-righteousness, the termites of pride, and he slapped a condemned sticker on this world, and he said, I want to save as many people that I can, but this is condemned. I'm not going to rebuild it. I'm not going to knock down everything but and save the foundation. No, it needs a new foundation. It needs everything new. Behold, I make all things new. And God wants to start with you and me. He wants us to be made new. He wants us to be willing to admit that we need to be washed. We need to be cleansed that we need to be made new. And those who he makes new, he will bring into his new heavens and new earth. And we'll get to rejoice and celebrate him forever. Isaiah 65, 20. No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die 100 years old, but the sinner being 100 years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree, so shall the days of my people and my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth children for trouble. And they shall be the descendants of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring with them. We know that Isaiah now is shifting gears again to speak about the millennial period, that 1,000-year reign when Christ is on the throne. We can know this is not the eternal state because there's still children being born. The Bible says that in heaven there's no marriage or given in marriage, so there's no child children being born. There's no sinner, where it says a sinner being 100 years old, or a child. So there, that's the eternal state is different than what is being talked about here. What we will learn is that during that millennial reign where Christ is on the throne, the conditions of earth will be different than they are now. Before the flood of Noah, we see people lived a long time. Well, after Christ returns, people also will be granted long life. They will live a long time. And if you live to be only a 100 years old, it would be like being cut off as a child today. 
we go, oh, so much future, so much promise. And we, we almost lament, the, we do, we lament the death of a six-year-old child more than the death of someone who has lived out all their days. And you say, well, their life was good and full of days, and now they've gone to be with their fathers. Like, they have had a, a good life. Now, um, Proverbs 20, 11, it says, Even a child is known by his doings, whether they be good or right. And those who will persist in wickedness during this time, they will be cut off in their prime. They won't be allowed to live a long time if they're choosing a life of wickedness. And so they will be accursed. Jesus will see to it. He will rule with a rod of iron. And it says that people will be blessed with abundance. These are the survivors of the, the great tribulation. Those who have come out of that, they will repopulate the earth and they will plant vineyards and eat of them. They will build houses and actually live in them. So much of life is, is transitory. If you think about things that you put a lot of effort into, for perhaps a job that you spent years working on this one project and then you're pulled off that job and you go somewhere else. You didn't get to see the benefits of it. I remember when I was working in uh, in the States and I had worked for this company for three years and like the month I left, they just brought in profit sharing where all of the increase, we would get a percentage of that as the the um, the foreman. And so I missed out on that. But it's like, man, you worked, like I know my job brought in a lot of money. It would be really nice to get a bonus, but I didn't get the bonus. And, and I remember building a house pretty much from scratch. Like when we bought a house, this was the second house that we bought. We gutted it, took 10 months to put it back together, how we wanted it, moved walls around, new toilets, new kitchen, everything. And then I moved to Australia. So it's like, all right, you know, you figure you're going to be somewhere for a while, but then God moves you on and you feel like, well, like I built a house that someone else is now enjoying. Well, good on them. I hope they enjoy it. I hope it's still standing, Lord. Hope. Keep it together. That wouldn't be a very good witness. Whoever built this house didn't know what they were doing. But how many times have you worked for something and you didn't get the benefit of it? You weren't even recognized as working for it. How many times have you, you toiled in the, the gardens and it was hail or aphids or fungus or something killed the thing that you invested all this time to try to grow. And he's saying, that's not going to happen anymore. When I am king, when I am in charge, your efforts will be rewarded. You will have a fruitful and uh, long life. And in Christ, we have an abundant life. It says, my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. You'll enjoy it for a long time. And, and in heaven, we get to enjoy it even longer, right? Without beginning or end. Jesus promised faithful followers in the church in Revelation 2.26, And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations, that we, when Christ returns, we, who are part of the first resurrection, will be with him. We read of this in Revelation 1.6 and 5.10, that we will rule with Christ as kings and priests unto him. So God has this plan for us as his, as his church during this period which will be a golden age of 
Christ's reign, where it says, They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth children for trouble, for they shall be the descendants of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring with them. In a physical and a spiritual sense, we can feel that we are bringing forth children into trouble. Like someone who's giving birth in a war zone. And they're like, how am I going to provide for this kid? How am I going to make sure that they are educated and they have, you know, a, a bright future? And so, and we think of that spiritually where people are coming to Christ in a world that's totally opposed to him. And there are tribulations and there are trials and difficulties, persecutions that people will go through. But he's saying, in this time, when I am on the throne and my servants rule and reign with me, you won't be bringing forth children into trouble. It'll be a time of peace. It'll be a time when I rule. Habakkuk 2.14, it describes this condition. It says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as waters cover the sea. Right now there's a famine for hearing the word of the Lord. There's people who have never heard the name of Jesus. But the time is coming when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. Now, have you ever thought about if you were Adam or Eve and you were back in the garden, would you or wouldn't you have eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Right? We, we all like, give me a shot. I can handle that. Almost like, you know, the carnival where you, you've got the, you know, the big hammer and it's a feat of strength. You just hit that button and you want to, you're like, ding, you know, hit that thing hard. Show how strong you are. You, you know, some some feet. We want. We always want a challenge. Like we're like, all right, I, I could handle that. Bring it on. You know. Um, but those who come through the tribulation, who are living during this time of a thousand years of peace, they will have that opportunity, where Jesus has physically been on the throne for a thousand years. Satan will be released from his bondage, and it says he will deceive the nations, and they will come to attack Jesus Christ and his saints. So, apart from Christ, we have no hope. There's no hope of us being strong enough or wise enough. We need him. And perhaps the absence of trials will lead to this. Who knows? But just as Jesus spoke this world into existence, he will dissolve it. He will create a new heaven and a new earth after they try to attack him and destroy him. Isaiah 65, 24. It shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. And dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. God's promise that before people call, he will answer. Before the words are out of your mouth, he knows what you're going to say. He knows your needs better than we do ourselves. And when Jesus comes back, he will restore this world to a, a time that it really has never known, where he is on the throne and he will rule. And his change will even affect the animals, which is very interesting. After the flood that God used to destroy the world in Noah's day, it ushered in new conditions. One of them, he blessed Noah and his house. He said, Re repopulate the world. But as I've given, Ad as I gave, God gave Adam and Eve plants to eat, 
But after the flood, he said, I'm giving you all animals on the world, of the world as a source of food. Okay, it says that in Genesis 9. It says, And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, on all that move on the earth, and all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. So before the flood, animals had a different relationship with each other and with people. And so he said, now you're going to be eating animals, and animals are going to be afraid of you. They're going to be wild. They're not going to be tame like they once were. So this suggests that um, animals, what we read in this passage, animals that we would term predator or prey, they will cohabitate together. The wolf, they hunt, wolves hunt in packs. Uh, lambs and sheep, they seek shelter in flocks. And yet a wolf and the lamb, they will just eat together. And it won't be the wolf eating the lamb. Okay, that's the important thing. Even their diets will reflect this change because it says even the lion's going to eat straw like an ox. You look at that big oxen or animals and you think, how, how can it live on grass? Well, God's able to do that. And, and somehow I think these animals are going to be more obedient to their, um, to Christ's rule than even the governing of instinct that they obey today. Like as predictable as animal behavior can be, they will be totally sufficient in Christ, governed by God. I mean, isn't it amazing what God will do? They will not hurt or destroy in my holy mountain. So when we read about these future events and we say, wow, that would be really cool. That would be neat to see. I want to be a part of that. Where do you fit in these future events? Because we're all destined for destruction. We are all headed to an eternity apart from God because of our sin. But because of what Jesus has done, by shedding his blood, we can repent and be born again. And we can look forward to the rapture of the church. We can look forward to that first resurrection of Old Testament believers before the millennial reign of Christ. Because that first resurrection is one to life and glory. The second resurrection will take place after the resurrection and that after the millennium, excuse me, and will be one of judgment. So if you turn in your Bibles, we'll just close with this. Revelation 20, verse 4 through 6. This speaks of the martyrs, but it is not limited to martyrs. For we too, as Christians today, will have a part in the first resurrection, the resurrection to life. It says in Revelation 20, verse 4, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. 
If our hearts yearn for the coming of Christ and the establishment of his kingdom, are we those in whom righteousness dwells? Are we those who are living worthy of that country? None of us are worthy, but are we living worthy of that call, that high call that God has given us? We can be a partaker of that first resurrection to life because those who are part of the second resurrection, it says the second death will have power over them. And there is no hope for those. When I was young, I, I, was a, I was a bit concerned with the idea of being left out of heaven. Left behind or left out or kind of missing out on heaven. But instead of fearing being left out, we should rejoice to enter in. Totally different perspective. Let's lay hold of eternal life. Let's lay hold of Jesus Christ in faith. Let's lay hold of the promises he's given us and walk in his truth. Let's discover that abundant life today that we can have. He, has, he says, I'm coming quickly and my reward is with me. It says in Psalm 72, 18 and 19, Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only does wondrous things. And blessed be his glorious name forever. And let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Lord, that is the desire of our hearts, that you would be most blessed. You are the one who does only wondrous things. You have a glorious name and may we praise you forever. Thank you, Lord, that we will, by your grace, that you have called us, that you have plans for us that just blow our minds. And uh, this world has nothing on this new heaven and new earth that you're going to make where you are our light. You are our life. You are everything for us. Thank you, Lord, for these truths. And uh, Lord, help us to trust in you. That no matter what happens in this life, no matter how crazy things seem to get in this world, that we have these rock-solid promises uh, of yours, that you love us, that you have a place for us, and it's a place that is a glorious place. Lord, turn our eyes to you today. Help our hearts to be fixed upon you, that our worries and our cares would be dissolved as we, and our fears too, as we seek you, Lord, as we trust you, that you are good and glorious. In Jesus' name, amen.